Security is a very broad brush, I would say. I think ease of use and security are probably going to be at odds for a while until we come up with something a lot different than what we have now for verifying identity. There's many companies where I would come in to help out and I would ask for access to production systems. I would get an email of the private key. Security is all about trade-offs at every stage. Security is almost by definition broadened later than it should be. It's an art to figure out when the right time to bring these tools in is, but you got to know that they exist. There are no silver bullets. Hi, I'm Guy Pojarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybeats.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic for us to discuss, find us on Twitter at TheSecureDev. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Secure Developer. Today we have Aaron Sanderson with us. Hi, Aaron. Hello. Thanks for having me. We are going to talk about a bunch of things, you know, including access controls and how do you control all these uh, pesky users you have on your team and still stay secure. So, Aaron, thanks for coming on. Can I ask you just as we get started to say a little bit about yourself? So, what's your background, how you got into security? Absolutely. I'm Aaron. I'm the founder of FoxPass. I started out doing software development on server side teams for about 10 years. And then I migrated more and more toward the operational side, helping manage data centers, and got really in, in depth in that space. I ended up running tech ops and IT teams for uh, several social networks. Then I did a period of DevOps, scalability, and security consulting, where I worked with a lot of startups struggling with these areas. And from my experience at Pinterest, which is one of the companies I was at, and at all of those startups, I realized there's a big gap around access control that a lot of companies face. So we created FoxPass to sort of solve all of those uh, access control and identity needs for the infrastructure. Who can be on what servers, VPNs, wireless networks, what can they do, how long can they be there, that sort of stuff. Okay, cool. Sounds like you're sort of uh, uh, personally going through the dev, then DevOps, then DevOpsec uh, kind of (laughs) revolution, uh, sort of evolving your skill set. So let's sort of go back a little bit. I mean, you worked for a bunch of companies. Maybe we we start around there. Uh, You mentioned you worked at Pinterest. That's right. I know, like in that role, you were saying you're sort of more in an ops role there. What was that experience like as it came to security? I mean, what type of security activity was going on? Yeah, I would say when I got there, there's nothing wrong with it, but there's always room for improvement, and especially the rate at which the company was growing around when I got there, and especially after. You know, there was a lot of improvement on how do we onboard people quickly, get them access to the things they need quickly. Uh, if someone needs to change their SSH key, you know, how can we do that quickly? And just so we really can focus more on getting people up and running when they onboard, getting them working on the product, and trying to just enable them to work quickly. Was there a dedicated security team at the time, or there was not? Like many young companies, it really fell on the developers early on, and then you know as we added more DevOps types folks, it was it was in their role. A dedicated security team didn't come until years later. And the security responsibility was just generally shared, or did it fall more, like you said, as the ops team came up, it kind of became more ops responsibility versus dev? I mean, security is a very broad brush, I would say, that there's usually a pretty clear division early on when there's no overarching security team that AppSec falls into the more senior app developers and uh, OpSec falls to those who've had, you know, who are very senior devs or have had uh, more DevOps or 
DevOpsSec experience. Yeah, it's funny that um, to an extent, young companies, because of lack of alternatives, really uh, sort of operates at the holy grail mode of the large companies. Because in large companies, you kind of go through this crunch where you, you know, you, you build a security team and you want them to give guidance, and then much of that security team's time is to trying to get engineers and ops to actually embrace and do some of these security practices in their sort of core competence. When there's somebody with that role, people may uh, confuse that as, uh, it's not my job, That's right. Uh, it's that sort of person's job. Okay, cool, so you're at Pinterest, I know you have security as kind of run as a part of those teams, you're not in a security title at the time, so you're dealing more with OPSEC at the time? That's right, it was OPSEC, DevOps, I wrote some uh, app code as well. <laughs> uh, you know, In the early days at a company, you wear a lot of hats. Yeah, any, uh, anything that's needed. So that sort of evolved, and then after that, you went on to do kind of ops and security consulting, or yeah, I mean, based on many of the challenges we face scaling up Pinterest, uh, especially on the sort of the operation side, I went out and helped a bunch of young startups figure out their operational challenges, whether that was scalability, whether that was security, whether that was just foundational things, and I did that for a little over a year. How much was a security a component in the ask? Like when people went out to, you know, when they found you, and they sort of told you what they wanted help, what what they believed they needed help with. How big a role, if at all, was security in those uh, those project definitions? I would say they were rarely asked upfront. It was rarely, hey, come in and tell us what we're doing from a security perspective. More often, what I heard was, can you just come in and and look around and give us improvement suggestions across the board? And so I would. Always make a point of owning it on security and, and highlighting areas for improvement as much as I would all the other operational challenges that a company might have. Cool. So you'd be sort of engaged on the ops front, sort of, you know, come to help us operate better. But just like from your perspective, that includes security, even if it wasn't stated in the bullet items. That's right. And oftentimes it was pretty obvious from the get go if security was an issue for this company because. You know, I'd onboard as a as a contractor and get to go through the flow of how new employees onboard, how they get access to the production systems, what other systems they would have access to that didn't go through any sort of access control. So it was you know pretty easy to write that report because I was living it. Yeah, I guess what were the insights you had, right? I mean, maybe now you can contrast a little bit. You've sort of seen Pinterest at a certain size. You've seen a bunch of companies that you worked with at sizes that were, you know, similar, maybe smaller. Yeah. As you're building out, what did you see was typically handled well from a security perspective versus things that that weren't? I would say almost all these companies go through the same arc, which you know I think is pretty common for all companies of this size. So you start out writing your app. Somebody spins up a couple of Amazon machines, gets their app running, and then you add more people. Normally, they're all sharing the same credentials until you get to this to a certain point where someone decides to bring in a, some sort of configuration management that's usually fairly late. And then, you know, if the company keeps growing, then you just keep iterating security slowly. And then at some point, you know, they'll bring in a dedicated security team. So you know, you talk about giving access to the systems and things like that, and we're going to sort of deep dive into that topic shortly. For other practices, you're sort of seeing in terms of operation security, what were typical types of mistakes that you would walk in and you would say, you know, quite obviously, like pretty much all the other companies I've worked with, I can see you're doing X wrong. Yeah, I mean, there's many companies where I would come in to help out, and I would ask for access to production systems. I would get an email of the private key. For the Ubuntu or the EC2 mm-hmm. user, right? This happens a lot. I know it's easy for many of the listeners to sort of scoff at that, but it's extremely common because that's the way Amazon sets you up, right? They don't really tell you 
that this public-private key pair that they gave you is kind of just for you because there's no way to add more users. It's you know, in many ways, the cloud has been a setback from an operational security perspective in that regards. That there's a lot of foundational security that is missing when you get that public and private key pair from your first Amazon machine. Clearly, that sort of statement about the setback is an interesting one. You know, cloud is obviously a productivity boost. Right, I think there's probably no arguing that. Right, that it made us produce more faster. That's right. So you know, the notion about access is, uh, you know, the ability to access all of these machines and whether we're sort of more fast and loose with it. Like, do you see that as something that's cloud specific, or do you think that's a symptom of the speed? Is cloud the thing that you sort of feel is uh, setting us back, or is it just about moving fast? I wouldn't say it's the cloud specifically. I just think it's the current process of what developers go through when spinning up a cloud server. I think the cloud overall as a whole actually makes things more secure, but I think the current process sets people up where they think they're doing everything right because they're in the cloud, but in reality there's a big gap between what they have in their hands when they spin up that machine and where they need to be to make a secure environment from an access control perspective. It's interesting, I think, sometimes around the ease of use for it. Right, Security and usability are oftentimes at odds. It's oftentimes if you make something easy, you sometimes make it less secure, or the other way around, if you want to sort of harden access controls, if you want to harden the ability to do actions, then you know that comes at the expense of usability. And we see this across the board, right? We see this with uh, the consumption of packages and publishing a new source code package, right? And in many of these platforms in, in NPM and the likes, you don't need a password for it. So if somebody got on your machine, they can now publish stuff on your behalf. And to an extent that reduces security at the same time. It's easy to publish, so the community thrives because you publish a lot of this type of code. Uh, similarly, probably for sort of cloud access, you know, you want the entire team to be enabled. It's DevOps, it's everybody's responsibility, or everybody's uh, empowered, if you will, to ship stuff, to access these machines, to to grow them. Uh, in the process of making it more usable, you uh, you lose maybe some of those controls that you had, as opposed to maybe the hardcore. Uh, you've got a, a physical machine, and you're sort of guarding access to it. It's slower, but it's uh, safer in some respects. And I think security and ease of use are always going to be at odds. You have to put up some gates. You can't have a process that you know anyone can do anything at any time with without any checks. I think even some of the more basic things that are must-haves, two-factor auth, for example, right? I think that process has to exist. It's a little annoying when you're trying to do something and you're stopped and need to dig out your phone or to enter the token or whatever. But you know, I think the right balance is important, and the right balance oftentimes depends on where at stage of the company you're at, what are the security requirements of your particular company at your particular stage. Um, but I think ease of use and security are, are probably going to be at odds for a while until uh, we come up with something a lot different than what we have now for verifying identity. Yeah. So I think like playing devil's advocate a little bit here, just to uh, sort of flesh out the thought. On one hand, when everybody has access to everything, right, sort of in this sort of extreme uh, and very common case in uh, in uh, platforms, then anybody can make bad mistakes. Also, if you know anyone's machine gets compromised or something like that, then people would have very broad access. At the same time, there's oftentimes when you talk about the improvements in security that continuous processes have, is that you are fast to fix, right? When there is a problem. Everybody has the ability to fix it uh, if the problem occurred for different reasons. I don't know it's sort of hard sometimes to counter. You're probably right that it's just about the balancing act. Maybe that's the even security angle, not just usability that pulls you in the other side. Is you still want to make security sufficiently easy that you can respond quickly. So it's an actual security demand. 
Yeah, I mean, we talked before about the arc that startups go through around security, and you know, in the early days, every engineer does have access to everything because things break. You don't know who's around who can fix it. But as you split up into separate teams, which companies do, you know, when they're mid-sized, yeah. then it might be time to start restricting which engineers have access to push code to which servers to access which servers. If you're a company where you have auditors or you have very sensitive data, it's going to be a requirement that you have you know role-based access control and start limiting who can do what. And most of the companies they struggle to build those tools. So you know, let's let's sort of dive in indeed into uh, access control. So before I have sort of a bunch of questions that dig in, let's try to sort of give it a definition. Can you can you kind of scope this for us a little bit? We're talking about you know access to machines. What do you see as being included under that title of access control? I mean, access control it covers a huge spectrum. I mean, you've got companies out there that control access to third-party websites. Those are the Octas and One Logins and, and Bidiums of the world, where your company credentials control what other outside ac- uh, websites you can get to. Then you've got sort of your internal access control: who can be on your wireless network, who can access a VPN, who can be on your admin portal, who can be on your servers for the engineers. So there's there's a huge spectrum. In the in the access control world, so kind of defining this a little bit. So this is you know kind of the broader access control. When you talk about a startup, what would you say are the sort of primary areas that I need to think of? Right, I'm starting a company, you know, whatever this young company. It's in a sort of whatever 10, 20, 30 person, uh, or even earlier on, right? Like as I just started, just a handful of people. What should I think about, and what should I explicitly not think about right now? You know, just it's you know shouldn't be a focus area. I think you should think about. If this person left my company today, what would they take with them? So, if this person left now, would if they're an engineer, would they still be able to access your servers mm-hmm. from their home? Would they still be able to access your your DNS portal, or they could cause some problems with your name servers if they wanted to? You know, those have, some of those have a weak TTL, so the, those can be very painful to fix. Mm-hmm. Even if that means that a very small company just writing this stuff down, like what's your offboarding plan, just so you know that. There's nothing this person can do to cause you problems later. I think as the company grows, an offboarding plan on paper doesn't work as well as having more formal processes, and that's when you bring in companies like I mentioned before, companies like us, to make one-click offboarding or role changing much easier. Yeah, so there's less human error in the process. Probably something to keep in mind in those cases is it's not just a matter of trust. It's not just about whether that person is is nefarious and is going to do something badly. It's also about just sort of your attack surface. So if you have somebody that left the company, they may accidentally give access to those systems to another party. Uh, they may get infected with some malware or something like that that gives access to those machines. So it's about reducing your attack surface. I mean, that's a really, really good point. I mean, you tend to think of it in terms of what could this person do if they were nefarious, but really the question is, what could this person do if their account was compromised, if their credentials were compromised, if they were fished? Humans are normally the weakest link. So if this person was fished, what access do they have, and how can you create policies where their access is low until they need higher access? So, if they don't need to be on your credit card database server, they probably shouldn't without prior approval, whether that's from a peer, whether that's from a, a Jira ticket being open or whatever. Because if those keys were stolen, it's nice to know that, hey, well, they didn't have access to anything really sensitive, so the attack surface was much lower. 
Okay, so I think that's a really kind of good uh, way to think about it when you just get started, is to say what happens if somebody leaves. You know, maybe there's a little bit more of that as well as you sort of figure out even your sort of team culture and structure as well, and just sort of understand it. So, step one: think about what happens if that person leaves, even if you're sort of a fully trusty in the employees as they're sort of still in the team. And then, sort of step two sounds like write down an offboarding plan, and then later on structure it, automate it, so that there's no human error or uh, omissions. When that happens, those uh, those are I think good steps. What's the next level? So like you've done that. That's about people joining, leaving. What's the next step up in sort of access control foo? Uh, yeah, so we mentioned it just briefly, which is what we call dynamic access control. So your access is is zero or very low until it needs to be increased. So some examples we give are, you know, you, you don't have sudo access to any machine or some machines unless you happen to be on call that week. And then your access is increased, and then it's automatically decreased. Or when you do give access, it has to be approved, like we said, a peer, a manager, but it's always time bound. You can only be on that server for one hour. Then that access is reduced back to normal. So what you don't end up with is what we call the master key. So if you've been at a company a year, two years, your key gets you in any lock. If that key gets compromised, then that's very bad. So if instead, your access always was lowered when you're off a project or when the time expired or whatever, then it keeps the attack service much, much lower. And that's that's really where we see the future of infrastructure access control, is everything is time-bound. I think that's a really, really good kind of a destination, and it sounds like one where it really is about tooling, because technically you could have implemented a, a human process to do everything you've just described, except that's very impractical it slows everybody down, but also you need a certain size company to do it. While on the flip side, if this was sufficiently easy, if it was just like the two-factor auth, it's just you know a ten percent overhead on the process of giving somebody the master key. Then why not? Right, assuming the costs are correct as well. But I think a lot of it is about that effort. Yeah, that's right. I think access control is a manual process. Uh, updating someone's access, updating someone's SSH key means updating a Git repo, pushing that up. Setting that to the chef server or puppet server, and then if it was supposed to be temporary access, you have to remember to undo that, which is again a lot of overhead. It's a lot of people's time. If we build automated processes, you get better security because you have these tools in place. You don't forget to change the permissions if they're time bound because it's automatic. So there's, I think, there's a lot of improvements over the the current state of the art tools in this area around access control. Many of these controls we talked about are are really good when you have some sort of central user management portal. Oftentimes you have multiple user management systems, right? If I use something simple, you know, you might have a, a GitHub account and you maybe use Google Apps and maybe that is sort of a central focus for a bunch of the other things. And you know, maybe you have some, you know, Jira account or you know, there might even be like Twitter account and stuff like that if it's about social media access. Not all of them kind of connect together. Is there kind of a good practice that you can do to try and wrangle these things? There are a lot of tools out there. I think on the low end is you know a common list of passwords in a spreadsheet, not, not really recommended, <laughs> um, but at least you know where to look. There's also password management tools that have group features. LastPass is one of them, one password uh, is another. Then you can move up to things like Meldium, which is very similar to those previous tools. And then you're looking at the federated access systems like Okta, OneLogin. They, really, they, they have abilities to tie all of those systems together. So they'll hold on to the passwords for accounts that don't have federated access. They'll provide federated access 
for sites that, that have it. They also will do provisioning, so you add a new user to the marketing team, they're going to get access to Twitter, they're going to get access to your ad management portals automatically, but someone on another team won't have that access. Cool. That sort of evolution is a good sort of listing, and probably sort of the key question would be, what's the right time for me to sort of invest in, in that type of system? And maybe it's when the pain is sufficiently high? <laughs> it always turns out to be when the pain is sufficiently high. The right time is actually day one. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anyone actually does that. And I really can't fault them. I think product market fit is probably a startup's first priority. If you don't have that, then what's the point of all the security? Yeah. But security is almost by definition brought in later than it should be. You need to build assets that are worth protecting sometimes before you sort of invest in that protection. And at the same time, you have to manage that risk about saying, you know, what could shut you down tomorrow? Uh, and for instance, losing your customers' data or uh, things like that, you know, could uh, make those assets dissipate very, very quickly. Yeah, uh, those hard-earned assets. I'd say security is all about trade-offs at every stage, and that's one of many. Cool. So I guess describe just to echo back some of these flows of uh, evolution in your sort of access control uh, level ups, uh, right? Going from understanding offboarding and what happens if that person leaves, to automating that processes, documenting then automating, to simplifying onboarding and then having dynamic. Or you know, as fine-tuned as possible, minimum permissions. Maybe if I understood correctly, there's actually two tiers here. First is minimum permissions, and then there's temporary permissions on these different systems, which probably go hand in hand with the tools. And this is sort of an area where FoxPass kind of can help you out, or is this in the uh, one login space? The temporary access specifically around servers, because that's really our focus, is is all infrastructure. So temporary access or temporary group membership on servers is really something that that we push. We believe that no company should have those master keys floating around, so we give you all the tools to make that happen. Yeah, cool. So that definitely is sort of a good path. And then you talk about the future a little bit in the sort of a dynamic path. Is there a lot of evolution as well in tooling around understanding that it happened? In, in many security conversations today, there's the prevention aspect, but then there's also a detect quickly when a problem occurred. Is there an equivalent to that in the world of, of access control, of just being focused on anomalies and the like around access? I think you have to combine a bunch of different sources, which is the nice thing about I think the current DevOps ecosystem is there's APIs everywhere. So you know you would make sure that products you use have logging output that you can get your hands on, so you can look for failed logins or odd-looking logins. You can use a lot of cloud-based tools to aggregate that data and then build reports on it. I think there are a lot of silos out there. You know, we'd be a silo of login information. There'd be a, another silo of of network traffic to look for anomalies. And there there are a lot of companies out there who are who are doing a good job of mining that data from all these different sources and looking for patterns. So I think it's really about the combination of all the pieces. I really like that idea. You can probably sort of dashboard just like you measure a whole bunch of the kind of ops metrics. Just some of these access-related stats, so you can sort of spot anomalies about failed logins around whatever, how long between logins or things like that to just draw attention to it, so you can inspect if that seems legit or if there's a problem there. Yeah, and if you see a user trying to access a machine that they should have long lost access to, that looks pretty weird, right? That's something that can be flagged in one of these alerting systems. Yeah. So I think there's really, really good sort of education around access control, and I guess we're sort of where we're evolving. One tidbit that does come up in my mind when you talk about access controls and these keys is just the relationship of access control to secret management, right? Because with secret management, oftentimes the secrets are tokens to access the different systems. How, in your mind, do you delineate those two worlds? 
It's a good question. So, you know, FoxPass itself doesn't do anything with secrets management per se. Normally, secrets management is API keys that your application needs to talk to third-party services. There are, you know, a lot of those that are flowed out there. From our world, the biggest secret is actually on the user side, which is that SSH key on their laptop. How do you protect that? You know, we could talk about disk encryption, a lot of things on the user side, but in terms of secrets management in a production system, you know, you want to look at tools like HashiCorp's Vault. There are a lot of companies who have built systems around the key storage systems built into AWS. There's a big world out there of those. Yeah. So it's sort of keys that are not necessarily associated with an identity. They're just sort of access. Well, I guess they're still access control. They're authorization means, but they're not associating to a, a person. Maybe that's where terminology fails us a little bit <laughs> around it because they still control access, but they don't represent a person uh, behind it. That's right. Cool. Well, before I uh, let you off here, uh, I often ask my my guests if there was one thing today that's kind of your your pet peeve or your key recommendation. If you're talking to sort of a security team that's trying to uh, to up their game in the security space, what's your uh, one recommendation uh, for them to do so? So when I'm talking to developers about sort of operational security, my biggest tip is just know your tools. You Got to know where your cloud provider leaves off in terms of security. Uh, what's missing. You know, a lot of them have documentation about, okay, we've left you here, but we recommend a bastion host, we recommend a VPN, we recommend you do all these things. Your work is not done. You know, Amazon has this pretty fine line of we're responsible for everything below this line and you're responsible for everything above. So you gotta you gotta know those and then you have to know what tools will fill those gaps. Uh, know what tools will fill those gaps. Uh, bring them in. You know, it, it's an art to figure out when the right time to bring these mm. tools in is, but you gotta know that they exist. And I think a lot of security does boil down to knowing how to use the tools that you're using and where their weaknesses are. Otherwise, you'll just be blindsided. Yeah, it's an excellent recommendation. I think uh, much of software development today is assembly. You're sort of pulling together all these different services and and tools and packages, and you put them together. When you put them together, you need to understand the seams and understand how does the eventual puzzle work together well. And that is sometimes almost goes without saying from a functional perspective because otherwise it wouldn't work. But it's very easy to overlook that from a security perspective. Yeah, and there are no silver bullets. Yeah, you, know, you have you have to know the limitations of what you're using. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, Aaron, thanks thanks a lot for coming on the show. This was fun. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, if uh, somebody's trying to find you on the Twitter sphere or online, what's the best way to contact you? Uh, just search for FoxPass, F O X P A S S, either our Twitter handle under that name or our website as well. Cool. And from there, it's probably uh, an easy path to get to you. That's right. <laughs> Cool. Well, thanks everybody for listening in. Hope you found this useful and tune into the next one. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or want us to cover a specific topic, find us on Twitter at the Secure Dev. To learn more about Heavybeat, browse to heavybeat.com. You can find this podcast and many other great ones, as well as over a hundred videos about building developer tooling companies, given by top experts in the field. 